off the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past, present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Um, Today is Tuesday, the 26th of October. In the studios, we've got myself, Fung, we've got Evie, Genevieve, and Carnegie. Good morning, everyone. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Good to see you. Um, Just wondering if we've got Studio 2 with us. Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you now. (laughs) Um, so yeah, how's everyone been? Um, it's, it's sort of been a bit surreal these last few days. Noticeably chipper, I think all of us. Yeah. Um, like we're still quite, you know, we're, we're not technically completely free yet and not until this week, but, um, since lockdown started to ease last Friday, I think the mood is high. Um, people are starting to catch up with their friends again and go out and get a drink or, you know, meet in their homes and stuff. And it's just improved my mood so much. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's so wild that, um, you can instantly just feel, feel (laughs) a bit better. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think also just like looking ahead to like the things that are coming up in the next few weeks is also just very exciting. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, we're going to go to a song this morning and it is called um, Bruxelles Je T'aime, which is by a Belgian singer um, called Angèle. Et en flamand, la 
Welcome back to 3CR. I think we're all good now. Um, what a way to start the morning. I know. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like we're all back in the room, so that's good. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, how about we chat about some news headlines today? Um, just having a look at the weather, first of all, it's going to be sunny and 20 degrees uh, this morning. Um, looking forward to some nice, warm spring weather. Definitely. Um, and it's supposed to be 26 tomorrow, which is... Oh, oh stop yeah. it. Is it How about we just all quit work? <laughs> <laughs> if only. <laughs> um, just going to the news headlines this morning. Um, on The Age, uh, we have some news about um, high case numbers um, happening at primary schools and high schools in Melbourne at the moment. Um, as you can, as you probably heard already, a lot of Melbourne's... Um, case numbers have not really um, gone down in any appreciable way. Um, and as schools are opening up again, um, we're, have, we're finding now that a lot of schools are having to close immediately because of being exposure sites. Um, so they're increasingly having to juggle both face-to-face and remote learning simultaneously as there's like, you know, the high cases for students into isolation. So it seems like we're going to have to deal now with whether kids will have to do their exams, um, you know, again, in in isolation or whether they'll have to do it in larger test, sorry, in larger exam areas that they've done previously and potentially putting them in a situation where they might be exposed. It's a very difficult situation. I think it was um, uh, reported on the weekend as well that uh, school children who are primary c- close contacts of a COVID-19 case will soon be able to return to the classroom if they record a negative rapid test result. So they're trialing this um, pilot that they're hoping will pave the way for widespread use of a 15-minute rapid antigen test across society in general. So if that works, that will be great for school children. Yeah, yeah. it, it, it is quite a tough moment for not only school kids but their parents and teachers I guess the whole school community um, at the moment uh, there's like a staggered approach to um, returning to school so some students are are back a couple of days a week and then spend the rest of the week online Um, and we know that year 11 students are currently back full-time as well as year 7 so yeah it's a bit of a it's it's a bit awkward and a bit um, yeah it's going to be tough for the next few weeks but kids yeah. are resilient yeah um, yeah hopefully hopefully <coughs> I'll be okay yeah it was so bizarre seeing 
the muck up day stuff. I think it was like last week and there was just these wards of teenagers like roaming around um, <laughs> in like Buzz Lightyear costumes. <laughs> Look, they're like, resourceful. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, other news this week, um, some more um, information coming from the US and New Zealand uh, about the arrangements around the AUKUS security pack. As you might know, this week um, 3CR is having a breakfast special every day uh, for Disarmament Week, um, talking to activists um, and talking about the militarisation of our schools. Um, in New Zealand has um, opened the door to joining the AUKUS Defence Pact with Australia, Britain and the United States. Um, this is an interesting move because New Zealand has a very, very, very strict um, ban on nuclear weapons, nuclear um devices and also nuclear submarines um so not sure where this will sit in with um australia's recent announcement that they're going to be developing um nuclear powered submarines um but there is also um new zealand's uh, top diplomat in canberra said that new zealand could also <clears throat> could also join the agreement to collaborate on developing emerging cyber technologies, including artificial intelligence computing. Um, so this is also like similar to the Five Eyes Pact that Australia is part of. Um, this is probably a concerning thing that we'd probably want to keep an eye on um, over the weeks when we talk about um, militarisation and disarmament um, here on 3CR. Uh, so, yeah, just some more interesting news about those kind of collaborations. Yeah, that will tie in really well with our discussion. At 8 o'clock this morning, we're going to be see- speaking with Elise from uh, the Medical Association for Prevention of War. We're going to be talking about how weapon weapons companies are coming into schools and, and funding these STEM education programs that essentially uh, teach young people how to use this sort of technology that you are talking about, Evie. So... Yeah, um, it'll be a great uh, interview later today. Um, there have also been there's also been some news coming out of Sudan. So security forces in Sudan have arrested Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok and several other members of the country's leadership. Um, and this has come from the Information Ministry. Uh, so uh, it's been reported that a military officer has dissolved the transitional government. Um, Sudan has been, you know, on edge since uh, the failed coup plot last month. Um, they've been, uh, you know, the military and civilian groups were meant to be sharing power following the, the toppling of um, Omar al-Bashir. Um, but it seems as though... Um, the military have now uh, taken over and there are um, soldiers stationed in the streets and restricting uh, movements of civilians and there are lots of protests going on. So, Yeah, reading about that, um, the most recent update is that uh, three people have actually died of at least 80 others that were injured after being shot by military forces during some of the protests uh, that were against the military takeover on Monday um, yeah, and as you said, Fong, there are thousands of protesters on the streets, mm. um, especially in the capital um, and in some of the twin cities around the capital, um, kind of just protesting the military takeover. It'll be an interesting one to watch. Um, we could even do some more research about this because I know that Sudan has a very volatile um, 
political uh, has been very volatile politically anyway with um, uh, their political structure and especially a lot of like uh, ethnic um, sort of civil wars. So um, yeah, a military taking over is never usually a great <laughs> sign. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to do some more research and um, get back to people on that. Uh, one more thing that happened uh, yesterday, and when I say one more thing, I mean a lot of things that were released yesterday. Um, yesterday we got the draft online privacy bill, the Privacy Act review discussion paper, the online defamation bill, as well as the draft restricted access systems declaration bill. Um if this sounds like a lot of jargon, these are basically bills and um, discussion papers designed to shape um, what the internet um, is going to look like um, over the next few years. Um, and uh, there is some really interesting and very worrying um, things in these bills um, that we can now sub- make submissions and um talk about um, to our representatives. Uh, one of these being that age verification will be mandatory for social media. Um, this is under um, the um, draft privacy legislation amendment, which is enhancing online privacy and other measures. Um, other um, changes that are proposed under all these bills are also um, sending age verification if we if you wish to view um, adult content, such as, you know, any sort of explicit content. Um, there's also, very interestingly, a tightening of defamation laws. Um, this is through the Online Defamation Bill, which is called the Social Media Basic Expectations and Defamation Bill. Um, this hasn't been backed by the government yet, so there's no submissions for that one just yet. Um, but that one's quite... Uh, serious one in that it gives the powers to um, one particular person to judge uh, defamatory content um, and also um, disclose who has posted that without the guarantee of anonymity. It's, yeah, it's, I'm not actually 100% sure how they intend to enforce a lot of these measures. Mm. Um, it seems like a huge escalation and it does feel like every 10 years we have a discussion about how to censor content on the basis of what children can and can't see. Um, and every time there is a lot of very interesting ideas from non-technical people about what can be done on the internet. Um, we've spoken before to a lot of people from Digital Rights Watch, um, Sam Floriani, um, Lizzie O'Shea. Um, we'll probably be speaking to them again um, as more details about these bills emerge. So, yeah. Yeah, it says that they're going to take, quote, uh, all reasonable steps to verify the age yes. of individuals, <laughs> um, but ensure that the collection of personal information is, again, quote, fair and reasonable. I'm not sure how they plan to do that for 16-year-olds who generally don't have driver's licences. Mm. So, so what kind of information is that? Then? Yeah. <laughs> uh, unless they're proposing, unless this is like a backdoor entry to get something like the Australia card or some sort of identity for every single Australian um, that isn't above the age of 18, then mm. um, which is in itself a worrying situation. Um, yeah, it, it's... It remains to be seen how they 
plan on enforcing these kind of things, but you the thing with any kind of legislation is that you don't want to leave it vague enough to be interpreted in those ways. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned to that. Um, okay, well, that's all for news headlines this morning. We're, we'll be back right after this. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is back for 2021. This year's digital festival invites you to take a journey with a series of thought-provoking films, documentaries and shorts. Effort 21 invites you to explore the world and connect with environmental issues beyond the headlines. Take a journey into the deepest seas, up awe-inspiring mountains and into the lives of those fighting to save our planet. Running from October 14 to November 14, visit effa.org.au for more. The Environmental Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. So yesterday on the Climate Action Show, we heard from women climate leaders in law, trade unions, media, First Nations and youth work. For law, we heard from Professor Jacinta Ruru, co-director of New Zealand's Maori Institute of Research Excellence. Um, She talked to us about the rights to nature and public space, Maori Indigenous sovereignty, power sharing and constitutional change. Jacinta Ruru is the first Maori woman to become a law professor. She has the most persuasive voice, and when she talks about relinquishing power in favour of Indigenous management of land and water and the legal rights of nature, it sounds like an idea whose time has come. Oh, thank you, Osprey and Shannon. It's a real honour to be um, sitting here with you today. Thank you for this opportunity. And in my Indigenous language, I greet everyone who's here today. Tēnā koutou katoa, nā mihi nunui, kia koutou. So this is the language of my ancestors here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm Indigenous Māori from the tribal nations of Ngāti Ranganui and Ngāti Raukawa. So in my 10 minutes, um, I wish to make these points. If we are serious about the rights of nature, we must first see, hear and listen to Indigenous peoples to understand their connection to and aspirations for the lands, waters, forests and mountains. And in the act of seeing, hearing and listening, we must be prepared to relinquish significant power in favour of Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination for Indigenous nations to care for these lands, waters, forests and mountains. So in turning to the detail of my talk, I applaud and honour the intellectualism, the bravery and resilience of my Māori ancestors and relations then and now. And I come to this talk against the background of where the laws of this country, Aotearoa, New Zealand, are beginning to see and hear our Māori environmental ancestors. For example, the law now recognises Auraki, Mount Cook, which is the tallest mountain in this country, as the son of Ranganui, the son of our Sky Father. This is now recognised in law. The Waikato River, our longest river, and the Whanganui River, our third longest river, are now recognised as our Indigenous Māori ancestors. And Te Uruwera, a huge forested landscape, is now recognised as the heart of the fish 
that the demigod Maui caught and fished up. This makes sense in our Māori world of seeing these lands. So against this background, I ask myself these three questions. If we see and hear as a nation, Māori environmental ancestors, what do we now do in response? And if our colonial dominated current constitutional orders are no longer fit for purpose, what better orders do we dream for? And how do we seek to make right the rules for our country to enable well-being into the future in the face of extensive climate and biodiversity intergenerational crises? So I'm pretty full on focused on these questions as are many others. And I hope many of you will also join in and opening large parts of your hearts and minds to work through these issues too. So I think the opportunity that is afforded to us if we listen to Indigenous nations is more exciting than the platform of rights of nature. Rights to nature means little to me if nature is not first understood from an Indigenous perspective. And Shannon, you, I know you've also been making these points. I think to do otherwise is to perpetrate colonization. So to explain and to do so, I'm focusing on law because it is a central tool to use to make change. As we all know, law hasn't been kind to indigenous peoples. It has silenced, stolen and criminalized much of what is dear to us. Hundreds of years ago, the Europeans dreamed up, dreamed up their desire to expand the air empires across salt waters. They developed that new legal doctrine, the doctrine of discovery. It holds that Europeans can gain sovereignty of another's lands on the basis of first discovery, even if other people live there. And I think this is one of the greatest examples of the magic of law. From 1840, Māori, the indigenous peoples of this country were purposefully alienated from the care of significant natural resources. Even prominent ancestral treasures, such as the tallest mountain of this country, Odaki, Mount Cook, the son of the Sky Father, were not exempt from the exclusionary crown colonist take all stance. The mountain came under assumed crown ownership and management in the 19th century, along with most of the lands and waters in this country. Māori connectedness to our lands has been seriously disrupted in the last 200 years. The deliberate colonial crusade manifests an indigenous physical, spiritual and cultural loss, but we've never forgotten and we've never gave up hope for our flourishing futures. If law is powerful and if it can make up things like the doctrine of discovery and declare huge expansive mountains as wastelands, so if law can do anything, what now do we want it to do? And I think by knowing that law is biased, we have the agency to make real our dreams in both a practical and constitutional manner. And this really excites me. But only if we can be truly brave, and we need to be brave in this climate and biodiversity crisis of our times. So my research argues that colonial countries such as New Zealand should more meaningfully connect with Indigenous peoples. And one way to do this is to reconsider the Crown's assumptions of having to own and govern public lands and waters. Legal personality or the rights to nature is a vibrant and real way to do just this.
throughout the world, governments have the opportunity to use the legal personality of the environment to address centuries of legal and societal racism and bias, but only if it is used first to reconnect Indigenous peoples back in control of their lands and waters. Recognising nature as legal persons is enabling many powerful things for us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Legal personality transforms our nation's legal system by placing at the forefront of our society a Māori way of understanding all that is around us. And in the words of our then Minister of Māori Affairs, the Honourable Supita Sharples, legal personality offers us a, and I'm quoting here, a profound alternative to the human presumption of sovereignty over the natural world. So in a Western context, the American professor Christopher Stone had that vision for environmental legal personhood back in 1972. He wrote that book, Should Trees Have Standing, and answered that question by telling us that trees, oceans, animals, and the environment as a whole should be bestowed with legal rights and a legal vision to be heard in the courts. But Te Uruwera and the Whanganui River didn't become legal persons to simply protect these places the law was already provide, providing layers of environmental protection against degradation. So for example, Te Uruwera had been a national park. This is the highest level of environmental protection possible in our legal system. A national park must be preserved in perpetuity in a natural state. By removing Te Uruwera from that national park statement and giving it legal personality and recognizing the face of the Whanganui River as, as a legal person are solutions born from the heartache and struggle to survive from the onslaught of, onslaught of European colonization, where the colonial atrocities of warfare, destruction and land confiscation have seeped deep, leaving our societies in disarray. The legislated solutions arose as a negotiated settlement between the Crown and Indigenous nations I think legal personality offers us the power to displace and disrupt racism in our society and in our state laws. And Aotearoa New Zealand legal personality makes sense because it aligns with the Indigenous Māori worldview and quite helpfully neutralises the hotly contested issue of who owns publicly owned lands and waters. The experience in Aotearoa New Zealand shows us if we listen hard to Indigenous peoples, they too have ideas and solutions for all of us and how to care for place. And the idea here of legal personality or rights to nature, I believe, is one of our greatest hopes around the world to build bridges to Indigenous worldviews of the personified landscape. It's not the only answer, it's problematic. It also represents, the, it re simply represents the best that could be negotiated within a realm that won't easily engage in restitution negotiation with the recognition of Māori Indigenous sovereignty. To act is the most important thing. If we see environmental ancestors in law, what more do we do? And I think we have to have a serious conversations about power sharing and constitutional change that seeks to empower Indigenous leadership. We only need to look at what happens when Māori regain power in the conservation care realm. So the new care plan for Te Uruwera, that was once that national park, but from a Māori perspective, is the heart of the great fish that Māori fished up. Te, te Kawa or Te Uruwera 
reads like no other National Park Management Plan I have ever read. This new plan for caring for these forested lands and his having legal personality. So this plan deliberately sets out to disrupt the norm. It strives to manage people for the benefit of the land rather than manage land for the benefit of people. It is a remarkable document that embraces a process of unlearning, rediscovery and relearning to seize the truth expressed by our beliefs. The orientation of the plan is deliberatively we are resetting our human relationship and behavior towards nature. Our disconnection, so this is the Māori tribe, the Māori nation of this area, Tuhoi writing. Our disconnection from Te Uruweta has changed our humanness. We wish for its return. And as embraced in all decisiveness, we are returning to our place in nature as her child. And this plan knows that answers to biodiversity well-being lie intimately within the lands themselves, if we listen carefully. And I'll just quote this part, and then I think that might be my time up, Osprey. So just quoting from this plan, the nature speaks all the time and is understood only by the sincere observer and heedful mind and heart. Humanity has much to gain from reigniting a responsibility to Te Uruweta, for within these customs and behaviours lies the answers to our resilience, to meet a forever changing climate. Through committing to Te Uruwera values, we are innovating our instincts and adjusting our behavior to ensure a prosperous future that is secure. And so I just end with those indigenous words of hope, if we can give back control and power to indigenous peoples, I think is one of our greatest opportunities moving forward. Kia ora, thank you. So that was Professor Jacinta Ruru on climate on the Climate Action Show talking about climate change from an indigenous Maori perspective. To hear from more incredible women climate leaders, you can listen to the full episode on the Climate Action Show page on the 3CR website, which we will link to in our show notes. We'll be right back after this. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Yesterday on Women on the Line, they spoke with social work students Sin and Inez, who share their motivations for entering social work, experiences of studying social work as students from marginalised backgrounds, critiques of the discipline and hopes for transformation. This was an interview that was inspired by a piece that was written for Indigenous X on August in 2020 uh, by Meneng Nunga social worker, academic Jacinta Krakur, which discuss the colonial origins of the field and a need for changes in the way that it is taught and researched. 
We don't actually have time to play all of the interview, but it was a fabulous episode. Uh, But we will play uh, the first half that interviewed Sin. This episode does include discussions of experiences of racism within academia, as well as mentions of the stolen generations and child removal. If this raises any issues for you, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You can access them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they're free to call. First off, you'll hear from Sin. Before we jump into this discussion, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself in a bit of detail and tell us why you decided to study social work in the first place. Yeah, okay. So I'm 41 years old and a mother of three. I am non-binary, use they, them pronouns. Our family has a history of family violence that we've been free from for eight years. And I had actually started my social work degree 11 years ago but it was interrupted by family violence. But my reasoning for entering into the social work field was having dealt with a lot of social workers in my personal life, I never felt safe with a lot of them culturally or being that I'm also queer, not safe in a queer way either. So it always kind of stuck out for me that I wanted to be in a helping field but I wanted to be different in the helping field. I, I wanted to be what I needed when I was younger. So that's what got me into social work. It was actually a good friend that had said to me when I was thinking about going to university but couldn't settle on what degree I wanted to do, they said to me, you're already a social worker, just do the degree already. So, yeah, that's how I got here. Tell us a little bit about the colonial history and you know the present you know colonialism within social work in so-called Australia because... There is a long and fraught history in the way that social work has been entangled with the colonial project. So from very early on in the colonisation of this land, white women in particular were very benevolent and imposing of white ways upon black people in ways that they were thinking they were being helpful, I guess, in a colonial way, but it's very damaging by taking children, by really reinforcing that black parenting wasn't ideal, that it wasn't suitable and that they could do a much better job of taking the black away from these kids. So there's really strong white supremacist colonial roots in social work and the helping field, whether it's in health or education. They're all quite rooted in... Uh, quite colonial thinking of the white way is the only way and it's done a lot of damage. So I guess what I see in the educational setting of a university is firstly one of the things that stands out most to me is the lack of black faces teaching in classrooms and the lack of black faces in the student body in social work as well. There's a lot of scepticism in our communities about social workers. I guess, like a lot of black fellas, some of us enter that field to try and change it from the inside. I mean, I want to change it, but I don't want to keep it, if that makes sense. I want to destroy it, and let's imagine something better. One way that we can shift that in 
institutions like universities in courses like social work in diversifying the teaching pool that sometimes we're really lucky and we do get teachers from diverse backgrounds but for example I in my first year of my degree I had to do a unit on working with cultural differences and the unit coordinator was a white guy and I actually complained to the university about the lack of diversity in the teaching staff for that unit because it was working with cultural differences but they were so limited in their own cultural understandings that I don't think they could do a good job in actually teaching what needed to be taught. The unit coordinator was a gay man and the week that we had to study Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, every single item that he showed us was about queer black people, nothing about strong black women or other systemic issues that face black communities, but it was all just about gay black people because being gay was what he could relate to. And while I think it's great because we need to know about that, hey, yes, we have queer people in our communities, but um, I am one of them. I just felt that it was so lacking in depth of information about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and what it is that we've endured for the last 230 years and just how important black women are in making change in our communities. Yeah. You know, what you've said there also speaks to the idea that colonization is something that can be siloed to a particular week in the curriculum rather than informing the entire course. Yeah, like I brought up with the university, I said what would have been good is if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander information was weaved through each week's topics. Yes, have a week where it's just on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, giving a background as to why there may be struggles happening today that stem from 230 years ago and what's happened every day in the colony for the last 233 years or whatever it's been. There's a lot we can talk about when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and homelessness and disability and domestic violence and all of the issues that we covered through the units that I've done, but it's just been very lacking. For instance, our family violence unit, we only had one week where we talked about family violence, domestic violence, intimate partner violence for Aboriginal women and children. And that's a much bigger conversation than one week can offer. This is really important. I think I was also wondering about the extent to which, you know, social workers' own positionalities are interrogated as a part of the studies that you're doing. Oh, absolutely. So I I have one example. Of course, it's processed now that at the start of each tutorial and acknowledgement of countries, um, And I have brought up with all of my teachers and emailed all of my unit coordinators in regards to the use of emerging elder in the acknowledgement. And I've had some very, like, white responses. I had one teacher say to me, oh, yeah, but other Aboriginal people have told me that you can use that. And I've said, yeah, well, I'm giving you new information here. That that's something that's only been introduced as a governmental thing in the 90s, early 2000s, and it's not actual Aboriginal protocol. 
to honour emerging elders. So please look into that and stop using it. But they'll disregard what I have to say and flippantly say, oh, but other Aboriginal people, as a way to reject the information that I'm giving them. That's a very common thing that happens to me. It sounds like there is this intersection between the power imbalance of being a First Nations person in a predominantly white classroom, but also the power imbalances that already exist between students and instructors where there's only the possibility for a one-way transfer of information. I actually shared an email exchange with one of my tutors where I had spoken up in class about something and he sent me an email thanking me for playing out intergenerational trauma in real time for the class. I said to him, hey, don't ever send an Aboriginal student a thank you for playing out your intergenerational trauma in real time for the class because that wasn't what I was doing. I'm talking to you about my experiences. That's not... I, I, can't, I can't even find the words for it. Um, no, it's just... It's just so inappropriate. It was very inappropriate. And I just said, like, just don't do that ever again. Yeah, it becomes you having to educate in that space, you know, being forced to educate. Or even when you are sharing, then it gets turned into a pedagogical tool. Oh, yeah. And always, oh, Sin, you're Aboriginal. What do you think about this? Oh, Sin, what do your communities do when this happens? And it's like... There are Aboriginal academics and other Aboriginal people that have written extensively about these things. You would do well to go and read them. Go and learn from people that I am learning from about things that help me get understanding about what it is that I'm experiencing that I can't find the words for. Part of, I guess, working with marginalised groups is understanding that life looks very different for different people. And sometimes social work has a very much one-size-fits-all approach because of the bureaucracy and there's so much paperwork that you have to do and report writing. And, and look, report writing is really important. It helps to build a story about what's happening for people. But there's a lot of stuff that really takes time from a social worker's ability to get in there and make real change in people's lives. The field I'd like to get into, I would like to help keep incarcerated women connected with their children. I feel like there's a lack of services available. So I want to work with women in prison and obviously gender non-conforming people, helping to maintain familial relationships. I see the damage that incarcerating mothers does to whole families long after they're let out of prison and the support networks aren't there to support those families in rebuilding relationships, in undoing some of the damage that's been done. And a lot of these families are left to flail. Then child protection enter the picture and more trouble starts and it just becomes a cycle that's like a ball rolling down a hill collecting stuff, you know. We need to start putting supports in place before we even consider carceral sentences for people. I mean, I don't think carceral sentences should exist, but obviously in the world that we live in, they do. But there's so much that I think needs to be taken into account when we decide to put people in prison 
Like, what are the long-term effects of incarcerating this person on their children, you know? What structural transformation might look like is having stronger communities that can address harm without causing more harm. So having secure housing for people, having ideally a universal income so that everyone has their financial needs met so that they can afford food, they can afford to pay their bills, they can afford to pay rent, they can afford to do social things with their families and have a well-rounded existence. That was Sin speaking with women on the line about studying social work and the colonial elements that coincide with this. To listen to the second half, uh, which interviews Inez, please go to 3cr.org.au slash women on the line. We're now going to be speaking with Kate Weller, who is the Executive Officer of Community Information and Support Victoria, or CISVIC, uh, who joins us this morning to talk us through the launch of an origami house installation called A Home for Everyone. This installation aims to send a message to the Victorian government to commit to new public and social housing. Um, Author and journalist Benjamin Law will be speaking at the event this afternoon. Welcome to 3CR, Kate. Thank you. Could you please start by telling us a bit about yourself and about CISVIC? Yep. Um, So we are a peak body representing local community information and support services. And we deliver services from about 60 sites across regional um, Victoria and Metro Melbourne. And we're there to support people who have community needs. Um, People are in financial and personal hardship. Uh, So our services provide information, referral, advocacy and support services. And this includes emergency relief, which is provision of food and material aid. Um, They also provide services like financial counselling, no interest loans, personal counselling. So we see people who are experiencing a wide range of complex problems. And our workforce is made up of just 500 paid staff but importantly, over 5,000 volunteers. So volunteers are really critical to the support services. They're the backbone of our workforce. And um, annually, we provide support to about half a million Victorias every year. Wow, it sounds like you cover a lot of ground um, and you have a lot of people there uh, to support you in, in helping the community, which is great. Mm. Um, So the Victorian government is currently developing a 10-year strategy for social and affordable housing in this state. Where are they currently at in this process and what do we already know about the strategy? Yeah, so early 2021, the state government announced that they were developing the 10-year strategy for social and affordable housing. Um, And at that stage, they reached out to community organisations and stakeholders Uh, to help in the consultation process. And this strategy is designed to be a blueprint for the future of social housing in Victoria. And so the submissions will help inform the development of that strategy. Um, And so there were many community organisations that made submissions um, and we expect that the um, strategy will be released in coming months. Mm. So it's 
expected that it'll talk about how the um, broader kind of sector and community services will support people um, and how services will coordinate service delivery systems because it's really important for people who are in public housing or social housing that they're getting all the kinds of support services that they need. It's not just about housing. Definitely. Um, I think we I think we really saw that as well, um, you know, during during the pandemic, during hard lockdowns mm. last year. Um, it's not just about housing itself, it's about so much more than that. Um, access to food, healthcare, education and more. Absolutely. And they're like the four focus areas of the um, the plan. So it's about pathways communities, partnership and growth. Um, so, you know, it's really important that the government is seeing this from a really holistic perspective. Um, but I think what's challenging for us is that the Big Housing Build initiative, which is a massive and historic investment, is only seeing the state government build 12,000 new homes. And this has really been viewed as a down payment into housing. We need so much more <laughs> We need 70,000 homes over the next decade. Yeah, so um, that leads me um, to the next question. Could you please talk us through uh, your campaign, A House for Everyone? Yes. So housing insecurity and homelessness are issues faced by thousands of people in the community every day. We see it, we hear about it, we support people in these situations. We have people coming to our services every day and the cost of housing, the lack of housing, uh, their eviction notice, their inability to pay their rent, mm. their inability to get a private rental property, they're all reasons that are causing them to come into us to seek assistance. So for us, the tragic reality is that it's a deep crisis that's really um, increasing demand to our services. Um, and, you know, every night there are more than 24,000 people homeless in Victoria. And the reality is if you're a single person on JobSeeker, there are no affordable or appropriate properties to rent. And, you know, added to that, <clears throat> there are over 50,000 people on the waiting list for public housing. And that list is growing by 500 people per month. Wow. So for us... We're seeing the reality of this situation every day and we needed to respond to it. We need to um, form a formal campaign and so that we can advocate on the issues. Uh, so it's about building awareness of the housing crisis, helping people to think about homelessness, what a home means to you, what it would mean not to have a home is the subtext. Mm, mm. It's about understanding that homelessness isn't just about sleeping rough. It's about couch surfing, sleeping in your car, staying in a rooming house. Um, and it's about making a public call to the state government. It's a desperate call that we need more housing. We need six times more than the government has currently committed to. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I think people still have a very limited view on what it means to be homeless. And, mm. and we have had um, Fiona from Housing for the Age Action Group on our show before to, to speak about yeah. older women specifically who experience yeah. homelessness. Um, so yeah. there is going to be the launch of, of um, 
the campaigns, uh, there's an origami house to, yeah. I guess, represent this campaign launch. Um, could you tell us more about this um, structure and the yeah. online event? Yeah, so this uh, campaign, A Home for Everyone, was about us calling on the community to build 7,000 origami houses. And it seems like a big ask, <laughs> um, but we do have a big ask to the state government, and that is that they build... 7,000 houses every year for the next 10 years. Um, so we've had community organisations, individuals, school kids over the last three months building origami houses. Um, and it's been a really fantastic uh, campaign. We've seen lots of engagement from the community, mm. lots of support for this issue. And this has provided a way for people to do something very tangible to um, promote the issue and so it's culminating in this launch <clears throat> which is today uh, as an online event um, and what we've actually done is built an installation to hold all of the origami houses and so the launch is um, uh, as you mentioned uh, we have a guest highly respected author and journalist Benjamin Law um, People may know Benjamin Law as the author of a memoir, The Family Law, which was also turned into a fantastic comedy drama series on SBS. Um, but he's also written for The Financial Review, The Big Issue, Crikey, Good Weekend magazine. Um, but we really were interested in uh, Benjamin being part of this because of his involvement in an SBS series reality TV show, essentially, called Filthy Rich and Homelessness. And for those who haven't seen the program, it's about putting celebrities into the violent and sudden experience of being on the streets living rough. And over the 10 days of the show, they transition to other types of um, homeless services. And for us, it was really important that we had someone who understood the issues um, who had that profile as well, who could provide a, a deeper understanding of what it means to be homeless, particularly from a place of privilege. And so the launch will be, as I said, an online event. Uh, Benjamin will be the guest speaker and we'll be able to show people the installation that our wonderful team has built. And following the launch today... Um, it will be a, a bit of a roving installation. So the installation is really something magnificent to behold. It's a simple wooden frame in the shape of a house, a bit like the size of a garden gazebo, and we've strung thousands of origami houses in places of the, the walls and the roof. And there are, there's a beautiful range of papers. Some of the houses are adorned with stickers or hand-drawn images, and some have simple special, special messages about homes mean to them so it's the culmination of so many hours of people's time in folding threading gluing houses together for the display and it's visually it's really captivating and I think each house really represents a commitment by the makers to ending the housing crisis.
And I'm sure it's it will make a great conversation starter as well. Um, mm. I imagine also the process of actually creating, folding and, and building these origami houses. Um, I just imagine people talking about the issue while they're, while yeah. they're making it. Hopefully, you know, if there were kids involved, getting yes. younger younger people to to understand what it means to have a home and what it means to be homeless. So sounds beautiful. Thank you. Um, So where can our listeners go to find out more about today's event as well as general information about CISVIC? Yeah. So I'd invite people to visit our website, which is all the W's, dot cisvic.org.au. So that's C-I-S-V-I-C. Um, And so if you go to the front page of our website, you'll see in the news section information about the launch. And we'd love anyone to attend. You can just click on the um, links to register. And following the launch today, there's going to be a roving exhibition, as I mentioned, and it's first going to Mornington Village Shopping Centre next week. And the following week, it's going to the foyer in Docklands. Uh, and then other locations will be confirmed. So there will be opportunities to see the installation over the next few weeks and months, hopefully. Yeah. And we'll post information about where it will be on our website. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kate. We will post a link to the website in our show notes later this morning so our listeners can have easy access to that. All the best with the launch and the ongoing campaign. Um, And thank you again for joining us on 3CR. A very great pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Thank you. So that was Kate Weller from uh, Community Information and Support Victoria speaking to us uh, about this afternoon's launch, A Home for Everyone. And for more details, please see our show notes later this morning. Uh, You're listening to 3CR. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're going to go to a track now uh, by Footscray-based artist Pookie, who is a Tuesday Breakfast favourite. Pookie has a new album out, uh, just came out literally a few days ago, called Flick. It's an absolute incredible piece of uh, music and artistry. Highly recommend going having a listen. Um, And we're going to play a song off the new album called Flick. said what? I said nothing. Something was in your hair. By touching it, I think I spread it everywhere. Flick, you said what? I said love. It's you that my cranium is full of. That afro, your cranium is full of. I want to see it every time I pull up. Flick, you said what? I 
opposite snack That's what you're looking like There's nothing that you lack Brighter than moonlight Promise a womb bite Morning, noon, night Whenever the time's right I'll tickle your eyesight Renew your appetite You know I got a rose hip The one that you wanna grip Wanna put your lips on Yes, I'm from Krypton Making me sweet Not just my physique But everything that I speak It's everything you seek But enough about me I know you got the key was the sultry and soulful <laughs> sound of Pookie and her new song, Flick. Uh, that's out on her new album, also by the same name. Uh, definitely go check it out. 
For regular listeners of uh, 3CR Breakfast, you would have heard Jacob and myself speak with James Brennan yesterday for the first day of our Disarmament Week special, where we bring you coverage on the increased militarisation of school curriculum. James from Renegade Activist and 3CR's Uprise Radio spoke to us about um, US forces in Australia, how closely linked um, military spending is to other areas of life, such as healthcare, education, and climate change, and what disarmament could look like in this country. Speaking to us today on the increased influence of weapons companies on school curriculum and programs is Elise West, Executive Officer for the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Breakfast, Elise. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and also about the Medical Association for Prevention of War? Okay, Medical Association for Prevention of War, or MAPW, a bit shorter. Um, (laughs) We are a national organisation of medical workers from every field. Our members really live out their commitment to do no harm by working for peace and disarmament. We're the founders of ICAN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize laureate, and the abolition of nuclear weapons is really a core mission for us. Thank you for that introduction. Um, So Miners and Missiles, which is a report published by MAPW this year, exposes a host of weapons companies and the money they invest in STEM-related programs for schools in this country. What are some of these big companies and how are they funding curricular activities and programs in Australian schools? One of the companies I think is worth talking about is BAE Systems. BAE Australia is a subsidiary of of UK company, BAE, and it's one of the biggest weapons makers in the world. BAE produces fighter jets, land combat vehicles, explosives, missile launchers. It's involved in electronic warfare, and it produces nuclear weapons, which are illegal. This is the entry into force of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The BAE has been named in a dossier to the International Criminal Court related to serious violations of international humanitarian law in Yemen, uh, specifically for the supply of arms that have been used in airstrikes. The EA has been found guilty of corruption and is also part of other ongoing investigations into corruption. So clearly BAE's reputation could do with a bit of enhancing, let's say. Um, in the UK, BAE has sponsored things like the Invictus Game, which is for disabled veterans. They sponsored a local pride march, sponsored an art festival, um, which draw considerable criticism from the artists involved. Mm. And it's also very active in STEM education in the UK. So here in Australia, BAE is heavily involved in STEM education at both the tertiary level and at secondary and primary level. BAE is also being a sponsor of the Australian War Memorial and at one point was a sponsor of a Christmas toy drive of a major Australian children's charity. So BAE sponsors is a number of programs and along with other big global primes, sponsors things like uh, STEM day out activities, visits to premises, direct engagement between employees and students. And in some cases, there are really embedded into the curriculum. So students uh, are, le- are 
associated with the company mm. during the time in school and then have a direct pathway into things like apprenticeship with weapons companies. Yeah, so speaking of the use of marketing tactics and and positive brand association um, that's used to manipulate young people and influence their career choice. Could you talk us through that a bit more? Sure. We found some of the programs that are sponsored by weapons companies target kids as young as four years old. This is really concerning because obviously children below the age of consent, they're very susceptible to the influence of advertising and there's community expectations about what can be marketed to kids. Mm. So you can't expose kids to alcohol brands or cigarette brands or firearm brands, but somehow it's okay to expose them to nuclear weapons brands. Mm. Um, some programs are direct engagement, as I described, and others are a bit more akin to junk food sponsorship of kids sport, for example. So where kids participate in a really exciting activity and then form a sort of positive brand discussion. Hi, Elise, are you still there with us? Sorry, I just hear that. Yes, yes, we can hear you now. <laughs> okay, so when weapons companies are promoting their brands to kids, they're kind of doing what all advertising essentially does, which is sanctioning some forms of thought and behaviour while delegitimising others. Mm. Um, you were speaking about the, the sorts of... Um, programs that they fund in schools, weapons companies tend to gamify skills that will be integral to the next generation of offensive, intelligent and autonomous weaponry. Um, What are some of the activities and equipment that are being used in schools that may seem harmless within the school setting, but are actually teaching children to use defence weaponry and other technology? Something in particular concern is First, Lego League. Mm-hmm. It's obviously all about Lego, which kids love. And they're not making weapons out of Lego, but it is very focused on robotics, AI, sensors and the like, which are really, as you say, going to be central to the next generation of weapons. Mm-hmm. Hypersonics, long-range and smart munitions, artificial intelligence, lethal autonomous systems and things like that. So these kind of weapons are characterised by their harm to non-combatants, the distance from actual killing, abstraction of human targets, and most problematic, the automation of life and death decisions. Mm. And these have really profound moral and legal implications that are really not yet settled. I found it really interesting that the Miners and Missiles report says that while the government has developed a defence industry skilling and STEM strategy, there are no equivalent strategies to support STEM skilling critical to survival and well-being. Um, can you tell us more about this? Yeah, we couldn't come across a STEM skilling strategy that was so fundamental to a strategic purpose mm. equivalent to defence. So. Defence strategy is kind of guided by the white papers. Beneath that sits defence capability. And then under that is industry policy. And the STEM skilling strategy sits in there and is considered really fundamental to meeting all those other strategy directions. And defence really has an advantage because it claims that Australia's national security is at risk Mm. if it doesn't have access. To a pipeline of kind of the best and brightest 
and the number of school, of school students studying stand literally flat lines and there's big competition for really talented people. The Defence Industry says its workforce will need to grow by like 10 to 20% over the next five years and it plans to spend a lot of money on talent acquisition. And without equivalent strategies in industries like renewable energy or healthcare or tech for development, talented kids are really kind of in a bind. They want to use their skills and develop careers, but where are the opportunities? Yeah, I also thought um, it was really interesting in the report that it mentions that there's going to be a specific focus on uh, girls and young women in STEM and um, recruiting them specifically. Um, what's behind the desire to kind of usher women into defence jobs? Well, women are underrepresented in STEM as a proportion of students and in the workforce, in leadership positions, in academia and in public life. And there's a significant pay differential between men and women and a high rate of career attrition. But this is across the board, wherever there are STEM skills, you see men are overrepresented. So this may be a particular problem in defence. The most recent public figure I have is just 15% of the Australian BA workforce is female. And there's a lot of factors and programs that are going to address this disparity. Um, I think it gets a little bit problematic when we look at programs that particularly drive women into defence jobs. I mean, it's a good thing to foster girls and women in STEM. Women should have the same opportunities as men. More diverse companies perform better, they're more attractive to investors, etc. But there's some problems with the defence industry. So I think, I think a good case in point, is in 2019, the CEOs of four of the five biggest US defence contractors were women. Mm. And at the time, people held this as a great step forward for women and a sign that women had kind of penetrated the heart of this very masculine mm. industry. <clears throat> um, and that this was good for women and also good for society. But there's another perspective that says making companies that create harm and profit from war more equal doesn't really change their core business and actually increases their power and reach. And in this perspective, women are kind of co-opted into a harmful project, which is the proliferation of arms and militarisation. And it's sort of an add women and stir approach that mm -hmm. doesn't really create fundamental change. And I think there's kind of similar perspective on women's participation in the military itself. But we can get very tangled up what's good for women and what's good for society. And again, it puts women in a bit of a bind if the only opportunities are in defence or in military careers. Yeah, in a way it kind of detracts from it being bad from society by kind of gearing it to women and saying that it will be good for women particularly because you're right, there is, of course, a disparity in women in STEM. So it, it kind of detracts from the actual issue. That's right, yeah, it does. But I think it's important to note that disarmament and reduction of military spending is at the, the heart of the women, peace and security agenda. So that's a UN initiative or UN agenda that recognises that women are really central to conflict prevention and to conflict resolution. And demilitarisation is kind of a goal in itself, but it's also a key factor in achieving other goals of the women, peace and security agenda. But the weapons agenda is about increasing military spending. So it's at odds with that fundamental project. 
Yeah, speaking of, um, you know, women being in a bind, which is what you mentioned just before um, Elise, um, I did find that the Department of Defence lists on its website that there are defence women in STEM undergraduate scholarships, which provide successful applicants with financial support of $10,000 per annum for two years of full-time study, opportunities to undertake STEM placements within defence and mentoring by defence STEM professionals. There is also the Defence University Sponsorship Scheme, of which engineering is one of three general areas eligible for support. And under this scheme, the Air Force supports four women each year to undertake an electrical or electronics engineering degree. I mean... It, it it does it is very um it does look very tempting when you know there there's so much on offer for for women um in stem uh in defense when you know there's financial aid there's promise of mentorship and um employment opportunities that's right and it's hard to tell students to reject these inducements when they are so significant and so many students, you know, do need help to get through their, their studies. And this is, things like this are kind of the culmination of what's is a continuum of engagement. So starting in primary school, through secondary school, and then sort of priming people to accept these offers because they've been socialised to the brands and to the industry itself. And it kind of eases the pathway into a career in the weapons industry. Yeah, definitely. The report also mentions um, that students are, um, I mean, through the increased presence of weapons companies in schools, students, and you were saying as young as four, are conditioned to see wars as inevitable and the the defence industry as a force of good. Um, Could you talk us through this a bit more? Well, by developing positive brand associations, it again kind of eases a pathway into accepting the fundamental purpose mm. of the industry. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> and the weapons industry acknowledges the need to attract people who are aligned to its fundamental purpose. So, similarly, if you're going to get involved in any industry, you need to kind of accept what it's all about. And the weapons industry will say that it's about defending people and keeping people safe and it's good for Australia and good for people and and things like that. And that looks okay if you're already positively associated Mm. with the industry and with the brand. Yeah, there's something quite dark though about young people um, viewing wars as as inevitable and that, you know, using... Weapon, weaponry, defence weaponry and technology is the only way to keep people safe. It really limits the the imagination of, of what we could be doing to, to keep ourselves and each other safe. And it makes me think of something that James Brennan from Renegade Activist was telling us yesterday about how, you know, just imagine a world where... where um, this country is a leader in 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 peacekeeping and and um, you know mutual aid and and um, giving support to neighboring countries instead of instead of um, you know being quite hostile and defensive with use of weapons it yeah it's just a very limited view of, of um, what we're capable of that's right technology is often presented as being 
the solution to many of our big social problems. And technology does have an enormous role to play, but we need sort of investment and commitment to developing young people who also have a strong ethical foundation and can kind of commit to demilitarisation and disarmament to enable the resolution of these other crises. So we can't really have two things going on at the same time. We can't be sort of solving the climate crisis over here and having an arms race over there. They need there needs to be sort of a holistic commitment to a, to a single goal. One thing um when we were doing research for um, this week uh, that I noticed, um, I work in tech um, and a lot of the courses that are available, not just to children, but also just to, um, you know, postgraduate and graduate students um, for cybersecurity and for technology are all aligned with um, government agencies. Uh, You know, we've been talking about scholarships and that sort of thing. Um, But so much of the um, the promotion of these programs um, is, as you were saying, just like it's uniquely targeted towards um, making people think that there is an ongoing battle um, and threat from even just our neighbours. Um, I was reading an article about um, the Australian Signals Directorate and their programs with school children and um, the high school um, students. Um, and just talking about, you know, um, the growing cybersecurity threats from China and talking about all these programs and how, like, you know, there's an ongoing need for surveillance. And, like, it's it's not dismissing the, the, the fact that, like, you know, that there, like, there are incidents that have happened, but constantly having that sort of air of paranoia and fear about it, I think also helps to, like, sort of limit the imagination, as you said. Um, That's yeah. right. Yeah, but they also managed to make these jobs seem extraordinarily exciting in a way. Oh, yeah. And because war itself has changed, we are less likely to have troops on the ground than we are to have people controlling drones or doing surveillance. Or This is kind of modern warfare in many ways. Um, well, we're running out of time, unfortunately, Elise, but I did want to touch on... Um, you know, recent comments that uh, Alan Tudge made about the way Anzac Day uh, is being taught in schools and and how that affects young people's attitudes towards defence in this country. And I also wanted to mention, um, you know, Melissa Price is now both the Minister for Defence Industry as well as the Minister for Science and Technology. How um, will this contribute to the increasing presence of, of the military in our schools? Well, first on Melissa Price. So she was given the science and technology portfolio very soon after the AUKUS announcement. Mm. And the PM was very clear at the time in saying that science and tech portfolio would complement the defence portfolio. So we expect to see an acceleration of the influence of defence and weapons industry into education. And on Tudge, I think history as a recruitment tool is pretty gross. Mm. Um, it calls it the woke generation they'll hate Australia and be unwilling to defend it because a critical view of Anzac Day is taught and first of all the curriculum doesn't say or the proposed curriculum doesn't say that Anzac Day is a contested idea 
it says that there are contested debates about the nature and significance of the Anzac legend mm. and the war, which is entirely correct. There are contested debates about those things. So fish has been misrepresented, but I think we all need to be a little bit alarmed by the idea that our education system is being seen as a way to prime the next generation for a war which we're being told is inevitable, that is going to happen any minute now, and it's so urgent that we must invest billions of public money in arming ourselves to the teeth and preparing our children to, to fight a conflict, which is entirely preventable. Yeah, there's there's a lot of work ahead of us, <laughs> um, I guess, to try and fight this increased militarisation of, of, of schools. Um, but we would love to thank you, um, Elise, for joining us on 3CR today. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for, but it's been um, wonderful having you on the show to, to speak to us about this. Thanks for having me and thanks for bringing attention to disarmament. It's really important. <laughs> thank you, Elise. Uh, so that was Elise West, um, Executive Officer from uh, the Medical Association for Prevention of War, speaking to us about the military's presence in school curriculum and the ways in which weapon uh, companies are recruiting young people and especially women to work in defence. Um, please make sure you stay tuned uh, to 3CR tomorrow at 8am Wednesday breakfast. We'll be speaking to Margaret Reynolds from the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. So we'll be continuing our special coverage um, for uh, disarmament week this week um, yeah but it looks like we've come to the end of our show um, it's been a <laughs> that discussion that we just had with Elise um, I don't know about you all but that really yeah blew my mind it was about, amazing yeah, yeah it's yeah. actually it's terrifying yeah also terrifying <laughs> yeah. like you know to associate Lego with yeah I know. And just the end note of, you know, preparing kids for war, yeah. this inevitable war that we, they keep telling us that we're going to have. Yeah. Mm. Well, hopefully now, you know, at least the four of us and, <laughs> and whoever's listening today um, are we, more educated on, on this issue. <laughs> and, and yeah, I guess we can start fighting back on um, the influence that weapons companies have. Um, although it is very hard when they are funding all these great, you know, exciting programs Absolutely. for young for young mm -hmm. people. Exactly. Well, um, that's all we have time for. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning on Tuesday Breakfast. Um, please stay tuned uh, for Accent of Women up next. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.